0: Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
1: Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello and welcome to Resolve's Gestalt U podcast. I think you're really really going to enjoy today's guest. His name is Chris Schindler. Spent the last decade or more at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, responsible for a wide variety of roles over his actually 18-year career there. Uh, started in research in economics, worked on asset liability model before moving to the asset management side and, and was one of the first members of the tactical asset allocation group over there. And Over the subsequent 12 years, he was responsible for researching and managing a wide variety of systematic programs. Notable programs include internal CTA, risk parity, alt-risk premia, quantitative cash equities, enhanced beta. He was well ahead of the curve on this. A lot of these strategies launched in sort of 05, 06, 07. And as we survey and have conversations with Institutions, big institutions, intermediate institutions, et cetera, at the moment, many of these really just got their alt premia divisions really rocking over the last two or three years or so. So way ahead of the curve on that. Chris is in the process of scoping out the launch of a new fund of ARP type strategies, which have basically zero correlation to most of the popular alt AltPremia strategies, which is pretty exciting. And we go really deep into the weeds on how to think about AltPremia, how to best build AltPremia strategies, how to stabilize signals, how to build portfolios, how to put different alt AltPremia strategies together. In general, this is a fairly technical discussion at times, But I think if you can sort of bear with us that there are an enormous number of really valuable ideas, concepts, lessons, experience that fall out of this. And so without further ado, I bring you Chris Schindler, also co-hosted by my colleague, Rodrigo Gordillo. I hope you enjoy. Chris, you've got a really interesting background. You've got experience that I think a lot of listeners are gonna be really keen to tune into. And so there's a ton of different directions we can go. And I just wanna make sure we cover some, as much interesting ground as possible in the time we've got. And as Rodrigo said, I think a natural place to start is kind of your education. I mean, did you go through school? Were you thinking, I wanna be a portfolio manager? Were you thinking, I wanna run my own fund? I wanna work for an institution? take me through sort of where you were in school, what you did in school,
2: and then the first few years post-graduation. Okay, because this is going to be a bit sideways then. So I went to U of T and I studied actuarial science. And that was more of an accident than anything because I started off in math and philosophy and was looking for something a little bit more practical, but I didn't know what I was doing. And, And literally, I started flipping through the course selection Aboriginal studies didn't appeal to me. And the very next thing was actuarial science. And it was like, well, what's that? Because so I didn't know what it was. And it was like, computer science and finance and economics and statistics. I went, oh, that sounds good. Done. That's how I started. Really what I was doing at university was rowing. So I was trying out for the national team. And, and so my big like, passion at that time was rowing. Graduated from school, started working at Tillinghouse Towers Parent as an Actuary. Uh, a friend of mine was at Teachers and said, hey, they're looking to hire someone in the asset liability group. What year was that? That was 2000. Right before the bubble burst, actually, and then there was this giant short internally. So I started working there, and everyone was short the NASDAQ and short equities and bleeding and scared, and then it all went right. So that was a good start. And so I worked there for about two or three years in this group called Research and Economics, where I worked on the asset liability model.
1: So say more about that, because I think a lot of our listeners are going to maybe not have as much experience with the way that some institutions operate, especially pensions. So uh, a few minutes on that might be helpful.
2: Sure. So ultimately, a pension's job is to pay liabilities, which is our series of cash flows out into the future. And of course, the cash flows are affected by a whole bunch of demographics and mortality assumptions. And But ultimately, the asset liability model had about two or three purposes, the main one being fitting the asset mix to the liability stream in some way. With And your goal, I guess, is to maximize returns while minimizing slippage. And, some, and so the optimization is not really in classic mean variance space, like your source of risk is actually this liability stream. And that's what you're trying to minimize the risk to. And so I would say the thinking in the industry has evolved massively in the last 15, 20 years, because you see a whole bunch of what's now called LDI, which is liability-driven investing. And you'll see a bunch of portfolios that are broken into the RDI and the LDI, where you kind of have a return-driven and liability-driven investing framework. So did that work for two, three years? And I guess around 2003, 2004, that department got split up. And it has got split between a risk group and what was a really like a very small department that just started with four or five people that they decided to call tactical asset allocation. And my very first job was to try and build a tactical asset allocation, a TAA model. And teachers had, just to rewind for a second, teachers had had a group called quantitative investing in the 90s, QI, that did equity quant. But it was sort of a end of month, once a month, GARP and value equity quant process. And that sort of got rolled into this group in around 2003, 2004 as well. There was a little bit of history of vol trading out of this group. There's a bit of history around some relative global macro stuff, but mostly in terms of systematic, in terms of global macro, it didn't really exist yet. And this department sort of started with it. And so, and my first job, as I said, was to build a TAA model. And I went through all the dealer research and uh, I can't remember now, but Credit Suisse had a uh, investment clock and it was five or six. And at the end of the day, I built a TAA model. This is sort of a macro model. It was a macro model. It took about six months. I think I had a sharp ratio of like a 1.8 or something like that. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew enough to know that as I presented to my boss and said, looks great. I would never put a penny of my own money in this. It is data mined beyond belief. In global macro, here's the problem. There's about five calls you have to get right over the last 10, 15 years. And if you get four out of five, right, it looks great. If you get three out of five, right? Eh. If you get two out of five, right, it's a disaster. And it's just too low breath. You've got stocks, you've got bonds, you've got commodities, you got to get, you got to get 87 right with equities. You got to get the bond rally right. Maybe you like pay attention to 93. You've got to get 2000. And at the end of the day, very low breath. But here's the other thing I've been working on a CTA. (laughs) So at the same time, I said, I think this is a better way to do it. We thought about it a little bit.
0: So that's a traditional CTA versus the macro space you're looking at, traditional trend.
2: I'm slightly playing around with dates here a little bit because while I was building this global macro, and this is very, very cool thing about teachers at the time, my boss at the time gave me. I'm going to say like a year and a year and a half of just time to just think things through and research. And the two of us sat down. And, and here's the weird part. You said, like when I was in university, did I want to do investing? I didn't even know what it was. When, even when I did actuarial science, the investment part of it is so assumed away, you'll spend 100 hours talking about the subtle variations around the liabilities and what the assumptions you make around like the mortality rates. And they go, and discount rates assumed to be 6%. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's the first and second and third order source of risk of this whole thing is that 6%. And kind of knew what a stock was. I kind of knew what a bond was, but not really. And within this year and a half, just a bunch of guys who, who had never done this before just came at it sideways, not really any clue what we're doing, and just started thinking about things. And in that year and a half was so formative because in that year and a half, we literally established our entire model building philosophy that stuck with us for the last 15 years. And what year was that? That would be 2003, 2004. We'd spend some time working on, on a CTA. Even you say, well, how do you build a CTA? And it was like, well, I mean, you look up a little bit of the research and say, well, you can do moving average crossover, you can do breakouts, you can do regression, slope regression line, serial correlation, and went, all right, so we built those models. And we kind of got to the, here's what we did. And here's what every model builder does when they first start. And they go, we're going to try and build the most complicated, awesome thing we can. It's going to be super sophisticated, super active. And and we went to a couple of conferences and one of the guys there, and this is now 2004, but one of the guys at the conference, I remember it distinctly, had this back test that had a sharp ratio of like, I don't know, three. And then, you know, hadn't done very well at a sample. He was like, don't worry, that's just noise. And, and he's like, but of course you have different moving averages for soy meal than you do for gold than you do for 10 years than you do because of course you do because they're different assets. And and we went, oh, yeah, of course you do. And so we did the same thing that everyone does is we built every asset and every moving average and we tested them all and we picked the winners. And we had this giant dynamic process and, oh, we had something super complicated and awesome, which is we're going to package these assets. And so we thought about how we can package the assets to build better trenders and better universe. And now you've got packages of twos and threes and weighting schemes, and very complicated, very sophisticated looked great, had a sharp ratio of 1.6 in the back test. And really what we were thinking about at the time was, how can we tell a good, all this active discussion and stuff, we, you know, all these active calls and all this weight, how can we tell like how much value you've added from all our awesomeness? And so we're going to build the most basic CTA we can. Because we got to, what's passive? What's
0: the benchmark? What's a passive?
2: Gonna... What's a benchmark? And so we went, okay, I'm going to build the most passive CTA I can. And this, by the way, was the thought process that has led to everything we ever did from that point forward. It was like, well, what's passive? Nothing's passive. There's no passive in this world. But the real question then is like how- Amen, brother. Yeah. Well, then the question is like, well, how can you get as passive as possible? If someone gives you two black boxes to invest in, and you don't know what any of them are, well, then I guess passive is putting 50 cents in each because it makes the least amount of decisions. It puts the least amount of pressure on your decisions as far as the future goes. The S&P is not passive. The S&P is an actively created index of 500 names that are managed, and it's got some momentum in it. And it's not the full universe. And you always have to decide your universe. You have to, There's lots of decisions you have to make, but the question is how passive can you get away with? This is where we started to think, well, what's passive? Well, clearly, if we test 50 assets and 45 do great and four do poorly, and we, we throw away the five or the four or five that did badly. Well, that's an active decision. That's the assumption that that's going to persist. And I guess passive means investing in everything you have. It's like, okay, that seems pretty easy. We're going to invest in every asset. So your universe is like, well, what do we have? What's liquid? Let's just invest in all of it. Let's just test it. And the next thing is, well, what models do you use? Like we built five models. I mean, whenever you have five things, one's the best and one's the worst. And you kind of went, we should go with the best. You went, eh, really? Why don't we just use all five? Because that seems to me like the least amount of decisions. And who's really to say who's going to do well or poorly going forward? And you go, what parameters do you use? It's like, well, I guess we should just use all of them. So we went, no, no. Because instead of saying gold is a 45 and crude is a 52 and it's constantly changing, there's turnover. It's like, all right, let's just use everything. 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, 120. And we did that. And then we stopped and we thought, well, that doesn't feel right. Because the 20 and the 40, they share half their data. And they're 50% correlated. And the, the 180 and the 200, they share 90% of their data. And, and they're very correlated. So if you do that, you're overweighting the back end because you're putting more into these correlated things. And we went, oh, well, now we got to think about this differently. And we went, how do you solve that? And I was like, oh, well, I guess you got to geometrically grow your backs, And we went, 25, 75 something, or is it 50, 100, 250? Let's do those combinations. And, and so it was like passive was about making the least amount of decisions about the future. But then the next, and this was the really, really big one, was what about risk? And we had this in the like, nice. conference in Montreal, and I literally heard, and I can't remember who, one of your other podcasts talk about this. And I remember I actually uh, had this exact conversation with AQR in 2007, and then they published it about six months later. And I called them, man, that's my exact conversation <laughs> with you. And they, well, what can we say? <laughs> exactly. Uh, it goes like this: when you're trying to predict the future, you have to make at least three calls always. You have no choice at all. You have to predict return, you have to predict correlations, and you have to predict risk. And the vast majority of active managers out there focus on the return side. And I'm going to say like. The problem is those are all active calls for sure. You're making calls about the future. And obviously your portfolio is going to be dependent on those calls. And the, and the question really comes back to like, well, if those are active, what's the passive? Shouldn't you make no calls? And there is a one over N solution. But the problem with one over N is that assets do have different natural native volatilities. You just can't get away from the fact that a euro dollar futures contract has one fiftieth of volatility of, of crude oil. And so if you put $1 in each of those, you're putting 50 times as much risk into crude. That's an active call. So to get passive, you have to have an active risk call. There's just no way around it. You have to predict risk in some way, some form. You've also got to have an
1: active view on covariance, right? Or some kind of relationship.
2: You do. And so I'm going to start with risk and say, you have to predict volatility. And how do you do that is a really interesting question. Because here's the next thing is like in actual science as a decision, you're taught more data points is better. Now, if I have 1,000 data points, I'm clearly going to have a better measure of the distribution than than if I have 50 or you know, if I have 2,000, that's even better by the square root of 2,000 over 1,000. And as we were doing this work, the guy sitting right next to us was trading volatility. He was trading variance swaps. And I remember him sitting explaining to me, and he goes, well, like the strike could be 16, it could be 32, it moves all over the place. And I went, well, what do you mean volatility? Like literally, what do you mean volatility moves all over the place? And he's like, no, no, like, look, it could be here, it could be here, it could be here. And I immediately thought, well, okay, but then how do we have a risk system which says in the tail, there's a very small chance of getting past two sigma, very, 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 very small chance of getting past three sigma. But wait, if Vulcan double, isn't that three sigma now one and a half and easily breachable? And and he went, oh my God, what does that mean? There's a lot of implications around non-constant volatility. The big ones being that makes for fat tails in the distribution. It makes it far more likely to breach your outcomes. But the other piece was, as we started to work through this, it was like, well, we got to predict volatility, but it's a constantly changing thing. And you've got to turn your mind completely because you're no longer trying to describe a distribution. You're trying to figure out what distribution you're currently in. And that actually means you, you cannot look back a 1,000 days. You gotta look back the shortest you can possibly get away with looking to best predict tomorrow. And if you got daily resolution data, you can't use two days worth, maybe it's 25 or 30. And, and it turns out that that little bit of research, you know, obviously that makes a big difference. Our CTA, this very short-term risk targeting, we've evolved that thinking a ton since then to make it a little bit better, but really that's the essence of it going, okay, well you gotta, now you've got your assets. You're predicting risk, like actually surprisingly effectively well. And now I can put an equal unit of risk into my crude and into my 10 years and into my equities. And you go, that looks pretty good, actually. And it turns out if
0: you just stop there, you've got a pretty good CTA. What's crazy is everything that you describe, we align to fully. That's basically... Everything oh, there's like a
1: corporeal phase shifting happening here, where we're all merging into one body and <laughs> brain. It's just a, yeah. it's a shocking phenomenon yeah. what we're observing here. What's
0: crazy today, though, is we sat down with a large fund of funds that just does CTAs, and as we're describing all of this, and we ask, what does everybody else use for waiting for the waiting scheme? And it's like conviction waiting, average true range. A few may do inverse volatility, and then in terms of different markets having different unique parameter sets that they handpick, yeah. they're all Terrible. doing that still. Terrible. I imagine this becomes now the benchmark against which you compare every CTA that comes to you.
2: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So not only, like, so we built this what thing. a benchmark. Very robust. And, and then here's the crazy part. So we built the simplest thing we could build. And yes, we took correlations into it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about a robust portfolio construction there because before we started the CTA and into some of that TAA work we were doing, The other thing you do is you learn, that, of course, you should do mean variance optimization. And very quickly, you realize that does not work at all. And I'm going to say, like, I totally respect what Mark Christman was saying. I'm going to push back on a couple points, but you do get massive corner point solutions. And corner point solutions are probably not a problem if you trust your statistics. If you say Canada and the US are going to be 98% correlated and you go, well, it doesn't matter if my weights are 100% Canada or 100% US because it's kind of the same thing. What you're really missing is that there's a massive parameter risk in that, which is, or uh, assumption risk. A, what happens if that breaks? But B, correlation, you can have two things that are 98% correlated with completely different drifts. Look at Japan versus US. No, they're not 98% correlated, but like from 1988 to, to 2006, and go, well, those are actually pretty highly correlated equity markets that went in completely different directions. Or US versus Europe in the last four or five years, and and realize that. If you put 100% in one and zero and zero in the other or vice versa, you can have very, very, very different outcomes. The result of this is that mean variance optimizers are extremely unstable to your inputs, especially expected return. I kind of came up with this like, well, how do you soften that? My approach was to sprinkle white noise on the returns. And I kind of like, so if I have a process and I run the optimizer and it goes 100% Canada, I'm like, okay. If you just sprinkle some white noise on it and run it again, it might go 100% U.S. Subtle changes in, in some of the inputs would, can really flip the weights and you go, okay, do it again and again and again. And then you average all of those and you go, oh, 60% of the time is Canada and 40% U.S. And you go, And That's actually a pretty robust solution that statistically survives that white noise. Now, if you throw enough white noise on it, we will weight them. So it's a process and I called it my blur optimizer. And so that's how I started. And this was Excel back in 2004. But I was like, okay, this is how I'm going to like handle this corner point solution. And that's what I used on my CTA for a little bit turns out it didn't matter too much because CTAs are kind of nicely balanced as it is anyways, between stocks, bonds, and people kind of go, and commodities. But commodities is like three or four asset classes. It's kind of like saying, and stocks and bonds, NFX. And so anyway, we built the CTA. I'm going, I'm going in full circle now. We built the CTA. It was pretty nicely done. It was very balanced. It was very safe. And we looked at a ratio. It was also 1.6. We went, well, I guess we'll go with the simple one. And we threw all that first work away. And we said, here, this is our CTA. So that's what I presented to my boss. And I went, here's the other thing well, what's a CTA? It kind of looks like an asset mix to me. It's got some stocks. It's got some bonds. It's got some commodities. It's got some FX. It's pretty balanced. And it crushes from a confidence perspective, that silly TAA thing I gave you before, which I'd never put a penny of my own money in. And I was like, that should be our TAA model. And then you kind of go, okay, so now the other thing about this, the CTAs, is long, short, and you can always do a mix, a long only risk balanced with a CTA. And now you're long and out. And so there's combinations of that. And that really is where we started. And so if you look into that, there was, there was just there was so much fun and cool stuff that we did. And this was the, obviously the coolest part about being at Teachers at that time was just A, great people, an unbelievable leash to just spend time and think about stuff and work your way through ideas. And, and ultimately, here you go, we got a model and like, here's some risk and off you go and start running it. And so that, and that CTA, we launched that in 2005 and I think it was one of the top performing CTAs in the universe the last 15, 17 years. Like it's been literally unched since we launched it. So it's been pretty powerful. And it was a-
1: Chris, just to press pause a little bit, how was the CTA perceived at teachers? How did they treat it? What sleeve of the portfolio did it go in? Did it get respect from the senior decision makers? How did you communicate the value of the CTA to the investment committee? A lot of those questions, I think, are equally interesting and are, I think, a little bit less frequently addressed.
2: I don't know what this was like over the last four or five years, but back in early to mid-2000s, teachers, and I think a lot of shops were, and maybe a lot still are, very, very discretionally focused. I mean, if you say like, what's the main sense of like, how do you make money in the world? It's discretionary. Everyone was a George Soros, Warren Buffett, accolade, and, and everyone wanted to make money that way and thought that's how you made money. Systematic investing, to say it was the poor and ugly stepchild is not even fair. Like it was a constant struggle to be constantly defending, to be constantly explaining, to constantly educating. And the, I guess the other side of it too is our external managers. So the guys responsible for investing in managers had just fired their last CTA in 2006. And so you know, because they went, well, why would you ever have momentum? You don't need it. We're making it. And so they literally fired their last CTA, 2006, 2007. We were like, we love this stuff. We think this is great. And this
0: Three is- years after the tech crisis.
2: Yeah, like all it took was a couple of years of underperformance and we can do better. We launched it internally. The risk budget was minuscule, like very, very small. I think we had $10 million of risk. And what did it grow to at the max? The entire group is probably running $800 million of risk. So I'm going to say, like, call that like a, if you think of risk is the 1% tail risk, you say it's make $250 million of standard deviation. So it's probably somewhere around like a two and a half to $3 billion hedge fund running at 10% volatility. So like it grew enormously, but really it was a very, very... Long process of education, and, and obviously, 2008 helped. I'm going to rewind and talk about some of the things we built before 2008. But you know, we had a, you know, I think, as a lot of guys did, have a very, very good return in 2008, and 07, 06, and 2010, and 2011. And bit by bit, by bit, we started to win a little bit of respect. But I would say it's only last two or three years where it was really like, as the group continued to do well, when a lot of people were struggling, especially the discretionary guys have had a, people talk about the systematic guys have had a tough four or five years, the discretionary guys have as well, if not even worse. And bit by bit by bit, I think it's slowly winning respect. It was a constant uphill battle. I think it's a fair statement. Now, my boss was very supportive. The CIO, because the other pieces, as we presented, as I said, the CTA, we also said, like, this could be an asset mix. And so we created something that we called the efficient risk premium model, the ERP. And it was really a, it was a mixture of a bunch of stuff. But you could almost think it was the vol targeting and timing at the asset class level, like targeting S&P to 10% vol. And then I was talking to Rod a bit earlier. It's like, now we call it hierarchical risk parity. But we built that back then as like we clustered. And as we said, we got to take all our, you can't throw 70 things into correlation matrix and do an optimization. You're trying to do risk parity. How do you think about it? We went, well, we got, I don't know, we got 10 countries. Like in our passive world, we're just including them all. Don't care if they're good or bad. And there's a statement in there. And there's a statement saying, I get the S&P is a bigger market cap than Canada, but does it have a significantly higher expected sharp ratio? Because if it doesn't have a significantly higher expected sharp ratio, it doesn't deserve a significantly higher weight. The crazy math of Sharpe ratio in portfolios is if you have independent assets four independent assets, the optimal weight is their expected Sharpe ratio. It's a crazy statement because it's so simple. You can Im- invert it back and go, well, if they're uncorrelated, the only way I can justify having twice as much risk in equities as bonds is if I think it's got twice as high a Sharpe ratio and no one can make that statement with any confidence. And so it's a little bit of a- You converge to the fact that they all have the
0: same Sharpe ratio.
2: If you think they all have the same Sharpe ratio, you should get equal risk to each of those pieces. And so that's effectively our statement because we did a huge study and we went back to 1920 and we had equities and bonds in the U.S. And the crazy thing was back in 2004, I think, or five when we did this, U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds from 1925 to that date had exactly the same Sharpe ratio. Four point, some, it was like to three decimal places. It was fluky. Now, when we look at U.S., we looked at bonds, U.S. bonds, you got to be careful because if you put all your money in 30-year bonds, your Sharpe ratio is much lower. The 10-year bond Sharpe ratio is higher and the five-year was higher again and the two-year was higher again. And we went, what's that? first of all, why are 30-year bonds so awful? And why are two-year bonds, lever two-year bonds, so much better for the same amount of risk? And we thought about that for a bit. I think i got a story for this because we're a pension plan. I know what every pension plan does. LDI, exactly. Well, it's not just LDI. It's like even in in your asset mix, if you want more fixed income exposure, no one levers up two-year bonds. What everyone does is they roll up the curve and they buy some more 30-year bonds. You want to increase your bond duration? Well, how do you do that? Well, of course you do what everyone does is you go up into longer duration bonds. And so- we kind of started to realize that the back end of the bond curve was crowded. And if this is one thesis, like you, know, like, you know, I want to get out today, crowding is your enemy. Crowded trades have lower returns and higher risk, just by definition. And that's not just in the public markets and everything. Like the more that people buy something, the more its price gets bid up, its returns come down proportionally, but its risks go up. And so if you've got an entire set of the universe sitting in the back end of the bond curve, constantly rolling it out, it's going to have a lower Sharpe ratio. We didn't call it leverage aversion at the time. We call it like, oh, there's constrained investors to leverage or people don't like using leverage. We started to have those conversations with a bunch of people around that time. And so we found-
0: And at that time, how was leverage perceived at teachers?
2: Pretty negatively, but still allowed. So we are a pension plan. We certainly used derivatives and we still, you're not going to lever up bonds at the total fund level, but we can do it within the tactical asset allocation group. And we sort of went, wow, this is interesting. Within fixed income- The less volatile the less naturally volatile part of fixed income has a much higher sharp ratio than the more naturally volatile because people will crowd into the naturally volatile spot because they don't like using leverage. And so we went, huh, I think there's a story there. And we went looking for it elsewhere. We found it in credit and we found it in equities. And so we launched an equity low vol factor in 2006 as well because we went, man, this is crazy. Like This seems to be like if you can use leverage you can create a higher sharp ratio process. And if you go on, if you turn into alpha because you lever up the low vol piece and you can short the beta or you can go short the long vol piece on the right side. Since then, I think, and you've had a couple of other guys in the podcast talk about this. The effect is less that the lower vol stuff has a higher sharp ratio. It's more that the really high volatile stuff has a lower sharp ratio. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to the same thing, which is understanding that if you have a bunch of people who are crowded into one part of the space, that space will underperform. And so all of that saying, we put all that together and said, we're going to call this thing the ERP. We're going to do a sort of enhanced equities. We're going to do vol targeting on our equities. We're going to balance them well and bring them together. We're going to just treat all our equities as equal. We're going to have 10 equity indices. Okay, we're going to put money in all of them. Now, fixed income was a bit interesting because we had the long bonds all kind of look at each other, but the short rates are a bit different. So we did two clusters. We did a cluster of long bonds and vol targeted the whole cluster to 10%. And then we targeted each of the short rates to 10% and then targeted the cluster of short rates to 10%. And then we brought those guys together and targeted the back up to 10% and said, that's bonds. And the idea was that we're just trying to figure out like, what is the most robust way without making any assumptions about just investing in bonds, global bonds. Now, here's the other thing. People get bonds all wrong. They confuse a bond from the process of investing in bonds. Now, an equity is a perpetuity. A bond is not a perpetuity. A bond is something that has a constantly changing statistics. It's a bit like an option, constantly changing statistics. If you want to know how bonds do, you have to compare a rolled process of bonds to a perpetuity like equities. And they're very, very different things. And so if you talk about levered fixed income rolled versus cash bonds, they're a very, very different asset class. The cool thing about levered fixed income, which I think people kind of miss on a little bit, is there's actually a lot more global diversification within global levered bonds than there is even within global equities. So people talk about their desire to diversify and they say, we should get some EM and some DM and some Europe and some... And it's like, yeah, you can get a bit of diversification benefit in equities, way more in global bonds. So global bonds are a really, really cool asset class that are so overlooked. And like I said, you do all that work and you go about the same Sharpe ratio as equities. And when you got two things that are relatively uncorrelated over time that have about the same Sharpe ratio, like obviously equal risking them is the way to go. And so you go, that was the start of our risk parity process. And we went, but we got a problem. Stocks and bonds, have a, they're great because they diversify against growth shocks and they diversify against deflation shocks. And together they look really, really good. But oh my God, 1962 to to about 1985 is a disaster. And you've got a big, big, big hole in your portfolio if you just do stocks and bonds because they both get tagged in inflation.
0: Just at that point, back then, when you're putting that together, because my biggest pet peeve right now is people saying that risk parity is a levered bond portfolio with some equities. When in reality, the concept of risk parity is making sure that you have equal risk contribution across inflation assets, growth assets. And at that point where you... Thinking about it as risk parity, had you kind of- The concept risk parity, I don't know if it was- So once again, none of us are academics. None of us are all that well-connected. Like, were you guys involved we're with Bridgewater up as at the time and We didn't know Bridgewater, but
2: them. we were certainly not getting- And we did it very differently than Bridgewater. So Bridgewater's risk parity had a bad 2008. Ours had a sharp of two. It was a quite different. And so we did it quite differently in a bunch of ways. What we were trying to demonstrate was two things. A, put stocks and bonds together. But B, we wanted to, we wanted to talk about alternative risk premiums and say that there are, there's an equity risk premium there's a fixed income risk premium. And most people kind of stop there. And maybe you can time them a little bit, and you can put them but there are so many other risk premiums that are as good as the equity risk premium, the fixed income that you can get access to. And so we want to demonstrate a portfolio that was built from a risk budgeting perspective, where we could put stocks and bonds together, properly risk targeted and put together, and then also add some other alternative risk premiums. And so that those guys together can create a diversified balanced portfolio.
1: So again, I just wanna press pause because I'm really, really curious how the conversations went internally at teachers around these concepts at the time. Were the people above you, the decision makers, they were allocating risk budgets, buying into this concept? How did the conversations go? How did their views evolve over time? What are current views on this concept? I mean, this is a conversation we have internally all the time. It seems dead obvious to us. In fact, it's so obvious we don't even know how to have a conversation with people who don't already know this is true. How does the conversation evolve with people who are coming at it? Because keep in mind, right? A lot of the top decision makers and institutions come out of investment banking, out of corporate finance, out of traditional research, equity research, or credit research. How do they perceive this view? It's so anathema to the evolution of their own thinking, the evolution of their own careers. I'm
2: dying to know how those conversations go. No, you're exactly right. And I would say it depends who you're speaking to. Some people saw it quickly and went, this looks amazing. And to be honest, it's impossible to deny because the back test looks so good. So the question is, do you believe that's cheated or does that fake or could it persist? You can show back tests that go back 40, 50, 60 years over and over and over again. And I would say I presented it 16 or 17 times internally to various people between 2007 and 2006, 2007, 2008.
0: Wait, Chris, would you mind pausing here and just taking a bit of time to tell us that story about AQR and one of the first times that you met them? I think you were talking about this risk issue, right?
2: So back in sort of, I think it was 2006, 2007, I've been running internally for three or four years. Things have been going pretty well. I was feeling a bit of swagger, feeling pretty confident about our thought process and how everything worked. But I wasn't investing in managers at that point. We didn't take over the external manager book until the end of 2008. So it was probably 2006, 2007. I'm not going to get it exactly right. But one of my friends at teachers went, hey, you should come join this meeting because we got some guys in and you might find it interesting. So we walked in and we sat down and we started the conversation. It was probably like, I don't know, three o'clock. They had a pitch book and I started flipping through it. And I got literally, as they were talking, I got about 20 pages in. And I went, Well, this doesn't make sense. And they went, What? <laughs> and they went, well, I don't think you're doing this right. And they said, What do you mean? And so we talked through that for a little bit. And they went, Huh, that's interesting. We've been talking about it ourselves. And we went a little bit further. And I went, Oh my God, how do you guys do risk? And they went, Well, we use a five year covariance matrix with a, with a monthly. And I like, What? You can't possibly. Are you kidding me? That doesn't, and literally, and we got in this very long debate. And I would say, in discussion, it was great. We went through the whole thing and, and we had like a very in depth discussion i was enjoying myself but i like i didn't know who these guys were and at some point it was around 5 30 and i went do you guys have a plane to catch go, oh, yeah like, we got a flight a bit later and literally we kept going and then it was like 6 30 and I, I could do this forever i like i love talking like this stuff but at some point like, you guys if you got a plane you might want to go and they go oh no don't worry our jet's waiting for us <laughs> like, wait a minute went, who like, are wait. you <laughs> and so like i left and it was funny because my friend Turner goes do you have any idea who you were talking and I went, no and he goes, well that was john lew it was Jeremy Getz and it was the AQR guys. You've just gotten into like a four and you told them that they were doing stuff wrong. And anyway, it was the start of a great relationship. I love those guys to death, but it was a very interesting and funny start. But it was like, what a cool seat
0: to have a teacher. To, to you <laughs> probably would have modified how you approach that had you known who they were from the get-go, maybe, right?
2: Maybe. I got to tell you, like I said, I came from the right side. I don't think I would have known them anyway, but I did. Talk to them about their risk and portfolio construction and model building philosophy, and
0: and challenged a lot of their assumptions. Challenged and a lot of assumptions and in 2008, on pain points that they were dealing with and internally. I said
2: like this isn't going to work out. When <laughs> here's where it's going to go. And in 2008, and then in 2009, I think they were like, uh, I think they changed a lot of their processes. Yeah,
0: Bridgewater as well.
2: Yeah, so I had those. I, I didn't have those debates with Bridgewater as much beforehand, but I would still say, um, you know, like like when it comes down to where might they have missed a little bit. Uh, on the risk and on the correlation and 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 to a certain extent bridgewater's risk and correlation diversification assumptions i think were n- n- okay. so so like and those guys are awesome too like they're, obviously they're amazing um but uh you know i think like like we, maybe we were just fortunate because 2008 was just the perfect storm for for us in our process because we caught it perfectly i mean we went through uh, you know on in in September of 08 of or in October 08 when like, you know, the S&P and the CAC were moving like five or 10% a day. And it was like, well, these are like 10 Sigma moves. And I'm like, well, no, because we're measuring ball as a as a five ball process. And that was a know, 1.8 Sigma move and it was completely normal. So we managed to get through like all of 08 without really even having a non-normal day, yeah. uh, just because, which was which was super helpful.
0: Yeah. Before I met Mike and Adam, I had a similar experience in 08. My drawdown was a maximum 3% drawdown in 08.
2: Yeah. Which if you're trend following is like trend following just had their best year. 2014 may have been like the best year ever, but obviously it was a... Sometimes it just, it works. 2011 was harder. 2011 was, people forget looking back. And remembering like, oh, seven had some craziness. Oh, eight had some craziness. But man, was like was the like, people quickly forget the whole European crisis and the whole Greek, you know, are they, what's going to happen? You know, like that, 2011 was crazy. I mean, like, this is my quote at the conference in Montreal, right? But I was like, for the TAA guys in particular, there's an extinction level event every five years at the very least. I mean, your lifetime as a TAA guy at a big institution is, if you make it five or seven years, you've made it a generation. So well, I a, met a
0: guy at the event that lasted a month after you said that. <laughs> oh, I won't no. say his name. <laughs> okay. Anyway. That was the main TAA guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, anyway that was, that was,
2: that was my, good, yeah. my, my anecdote. I also like had debates with AQR and Bridgewater and the AQR guys a bunch in 2007 and 2008 and disagreed with a bunch of what they were doing on risk. And we were very vocal about it. And so these conversations, but especially internally at Teachers, I would say my boss was very supportive. The CIO, Neil Petroff at the time, was very supportive. The Asset Mix and Risk Group was not. And I think it challenged them and what they felt their purpose in life was. But it also, I think a vast majority of people went, what are you talking about risk-based? Clearly, you cannot invest risk-based. You have to have an expected return view. And not only do they not like it, they hate it because it yes, challenges right. everything they think Every about investing.
0: actuarial... Scientist, I mean, he well, doesn't know to what he's talking certainty. about. He
2: doesn't know how can you invest without expected. Returns? Without that and, certainty, you
0: can't create a model. And right? I
2: came out with the other side, what I had to develop over time was a story as to why these things make money and a story as to how you can balance the risk. And it took a lot of time to develop that story. 2008 helped a ton, obviously in 2009, our CIO said, we're going to put some of this at the total fund level still was a real tough challenge to sell internally. And a lot of the pushback was, if it's as good as you say it is, why isn't everyone doing it, of course. which is a huge pushback. Over and over again, by 2012, the story had turned from, no, of course we all know to do this. We've been doing it since 2004. (laughs) It was a flash over when it's like, well, everyone knows to do this now. And somewhere between 2007, which was like, because you had the GMOs on the other side and the James Montiers, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but like, you know, the guys on the other side just, and everything they say, you could go line by line and say, Man, it was so hard to defend his statements because he would have nine things wrong in one paragraph and you start to feel petty, but it resonated what he said. It resonated with a bunch of people. And so I would say- Well, it was great storytelling. You know, what we know is that
1: a good story, especially a good macro story, sticks with people. It's emotionally salient. They feel like they can reach out and touch it. It's consistent with what they're observing in the news or it's feeding whatever bias they might have, bullish or bearish or an emphasis for whatever for whatever asset class silo they happen
2: to be involved in at the moment. We had really good global macro traders and teachers as well. So to say like there weren't guys who were also hitting it out of the park on the other side, on the expected return side. My thesis had always been sharp ratio is return over risk. And it's so much easier to improve the sharp ratio by improving the risk side and then levering it up than it is to try and create better returns. But we had guys coming exactly from the other side, on the return side. And I actually say the two groups were pretty complementary, to be honest. But the intuition, way, way, way over on the trying to predict, expect returns better.
0: It's amazing how much credence the average allocator gives to the black box inside some brilliant mind's guy's head that has a great narrative versus the black box that you can demonstrate through mathematics, right? That is always the challenge. And it just sells better. The global macro story sells better.
2: Yeah. I think the quants through 15 years of outperformance now have started to win some of those battles. You know, it's been a hard run.
1: Part of the problem is that the lingua franca of investing for people that emerge out of the MBA system or the CFA system or iBanking or corporate banking or what have you is completely different than the lingua franca of investors that emerge from the computer science, math, kind of quant space and such a big challenge is how do you even communicate concepts when you don't speak
2: the same language, right? hundred percent. How do you bridge that? I think bit by bit by bit, you start to develop a story that explains risk premiums and you have to, because you have to get to the intuition of them. And if you can't get to the intuition of it, you're never going to win anyone over because you cannot just show a return or a back test and say, trust me on this one, because you're up against guys telling a story and you need a story.
1: I agree. And I mean, 100% validate that. The challenge we run into is you go through the story and guys are nodding. It's so intuitive. It's so logical. It's impossible not to nod along. Of course you agree. Here's the evidence. Here's the logic. Here's how they all fit together. You get everyone nodding along at the end. They're like, yeah, this makes total sense. I absolutely love this. Cool. So you're going to make a major change in this direction? Oh, God, no.
2: Yeah. So here's the other thing. And I think what people miss on the expected return global macro side is you have to make two or three calls. And people tend to think like, okay, I think growth in India is going to be 8% or 10%. And most people stop there. And you hear a lot of CEOs and CIOs go, well, we got to go where growth is. There's going to be 8% or 10% growth in India. We have to be in the Indian market or the Chinese market. That's where the growth is. And you go, holy crow, no. There's no correlation. <laughs> well, not as yeah, really no correlation. The statement's almost nonsense. Because if the market's expecting 8%, then an 8% growth is going to only ever give you back your discount rate. And this is actually kind of a hard thing where people are like, you only, if the thing does what you expect it to do, you only ever get your discount rate back. We can talk through that in a little bit more, but to say if it's expecting 8% and it gets 8%, you don't return 8%. You get back whatever the discount rate was priced into that. And so you get like the exact market return. You get paid for surprises. Yeah. And so the end, you get paid for surprises, exactly. And so what you have to do when you're predicting this stuff is not only say what's going to happen, but you have to say, what does the market think? So you got to know, I am expecting eight and the market's expecting six. And I don't know how you figure that out because that's actually quite hard to figure out. And then you have to have the third piece, which was, and here's why the market's got it wrong. And here's how they are going to come to my understanding. Those are the three things that have to happen before you can make money with that call. To me, that's very, very tricky. You've got to have a view. It's got to be different than the market view. You have to know the market view and you have to have a thesis as to why the market's going to come around to your point of view and why you're right and the market's wrong. Tricky tricky tricky. But the formation of that thesis is a story.
0: Oh, it's a 30-page paper.
2: And then the absolute best investors, like the absolute best ones, the ones who get the most risk and for better or for worse, are the guys who tell the best story. And the investors who can tell the story after the fact who got it wrong and still convince you they were right, even though they lost money, the ability to tell a good story after the fact is super super important for the quants too, just to be honest, but like you have to be able to tell a good story. Look, not to say like, look, there are some really good global macro guys out there. The way I've kind of come around the last little bit is some of the guys at AQR did some work on Warren Buffett and they wrote a follow-up paper that they called Superstar Investors, which was Warren Buffett, George Soros, Bill Gross, and the, and the fourth, I kind of leave out because-, because John it, Templeton. It doesn't help my story, <laughs> but you kind of go, um, the, uh, what they kind of did is they went, look at Warren Buffett's returns. And he's, I think, unbelievable career, sharp ratio of like around 0.8, 23% returns or whatever they were, like really like or 20%. Let's talk now about how he made his money. Because Warren Buffett, he's pretty open and he tells you his thesis and and he's a deep value guy, but he's an alpha guy. He'd be like, I pick winners, I'm a stock picker, I'm an alpha guy, and I pick my businesses as well. And what this paper sort of said is it was using the modern framework of risk factors and risk premiums. Let's go back and see if we can explain some of his returns just with modern risk factors. And what you'll find is that you know Warren Buffett's returns were equity, because you know he invests in the stock market, because the stock market pays money over time. So there's an equity risk premium and everyone kind of knows not just equity, it's levered equity. Yeah, so it's equity and then he has value and quality and low volatility. We'll pause there for a second. but And then he levers it up 1.7 times. And you go, so Warren Buffett for 30 or 40 years- And nobody can
0: take the money away from him.
2: Understood that, yeah, the stock market pays money over time, but there's these other things that also pay money over time persistently. What is value? And what is low volatility? And what is quality? And why do those things persistently pay money like equities do is a really, really interesting and deep question. Because he intuitively understood it. And the genius of Warren Buffett was to realize 30 or 40 years ago, Lever laval holy crow, I thought I'd found it in 2006. And it's like, no, Warren Buffett had been doing it for 30 years before me. But the question that you really have to answer is, well, why do these things persistently make money? Because the quants struggle with this big time. Because the quants come at it with a, if something persistently makes money over time, we've got to call it an anomaly or an irrationality. And I went like, absolutely not. You have to just understand why you should expect to get paid in this world. That's the wrong way to think about it. That's the egocentric, why does the world owe me money? I took risk and I should get paid for that. And you go, absolutely not. You do not get paid for taking risk. The question then is, the real right to answer is, why should I expect people to persistently pay me over time? What is it about these things that has someone else happily handing away their money? Because the equity is premium. You don't have to answer that question. No one, has to, no one questions whether equities owe you money over time. You should expect a positive risk. Rate. How much is an interesting question, but we should agree that it's kind of positive on expectation because people would not lend to other people if they didn't expect to get back something above what they lent out or they wouldn't do it. On expectation, I expect to get back more than I lent out, but the key thing is the person I'm lending to is also expecting to pay me back more than I lent them. We agree, both sides of this trade agree that they're going to be giving me back more than I gave them, but they both happily entered the transaction because both players are better off for it. I'm a pension plan, I got cash in my pocket. It's burning a hole in my pocket. I don't know what to do with it. And I've got this business over here that really could use some cash to help grow their business. And together, we're both better off for this trade. And they're going to pay me something in return for that. And that's the equity risk premium in a nutshell. Fixed income risk premium is the same thing. No one questions whether you should, on expectation, make money over time investing in bonds. Yes, you should. How much is another question, but it should be positive. You wouldn't lend otherwise. And so a risk premium to me is so different than alpha. Alpha is, Rod, if you're long forward and I'm short forward, you're trying to take my money and I'm trying to take your money. And we're going at it. And it's very, very hard to pry money out of someone's hands who's trying to to keep it and take your money at the same time. You have to have better information. You got to be smarter. You got to be faster. You have to have insider information. You got to have some way that you can take someone else's money. You lie, cheat, steal, whatever it is. Alpha is hard. And it's a zero-sum game. And at the end of the day, it's net negative after T costs. And so you look at Alpha and you go, yeah, that's a really, really hard space to make money. But it's so different than risk premiums where we all agree you're going to pay me more than I'm going to give you. And, and there's a flow of wealth from you to me. And somehow, somewhere we're both happy for this transaction. And so I think like the genius of Warren Buffett, and we'll see what the other guys too, is that they went, there are areas within the stock market where there's other risk premiums. There's other payers and payees that persistently pay and happily pay and consistently pay and if you can put money into those pockets and groups, you should expect to get paid over time for that. And so, this is like if you look at Warren Buffett's, he goes, It's value, it's low vol, it's quality. When you look at Bill Gross, well, Bill Gross, equity, risk premium, of course. You had a credit default risk premium. He also was in low vol, and then he was vol selling. He said, Well, what's vol selling, and why is that a risk premium? And why does that persistently pay over time, like the stocks or the bonds or the. And then George Soros. George Soros was like the big global macro stuff. He was doing like cross-sectional momentum, the trend following, the FX carries, the values. And the really cool thing about this paper is between Bill Gross, Warren Buffett, and George Soros, between them, they had stocks, credit, which is they call those like kind of betas maybe for a second, and then value, quality, momentum, low vol, volatility, trend following, cross-sectional momentum, value, carry. And you go, holy crow, those three guys were doing the alt-risk premiums. They've just been doing it for two or three decades. And you go like, so the intuition is like, you shouldn't, the systematic guys shouldn't have to defend the intuition. We're just doing what the discretionary guys have been doing for decades and figured it out. It doesn't really take away so much of, well, what are these things and why do they make money? But it should take away from the Are we doing anything different? No, the answer is you're doing the exact same stuff. You might be doing it more efficiently. You might be doing it more consistently. I think that's an amazing takeaway. I like that. It's a really good way to connect
1: the dots between systematic risk premium strategies and the people that everybody knows and loves and respects and lionizes. And you sort of just say, they were just following the same strategies. We're just recognizing it now, but we can explain what those strategies are, why we should expect to get paid, why they should persist. And we've got a systematic way to harvest those same premia. So it's nothing new and it's not scary and it's not a black box. These guys have been doing the same thing for years, just not systematically.
2: Right. Exactly. And between the three of them, all quite successfully, you put them all together and there's a nice portfolio. It looks a lot like the back test
0: right. of the alts. Going back to this premium and alpha. Yeah. So they would all be considered alpha players. And what you're positing is that in fact, this is all a positive exchange for all parties. So volatility was one of them that you brought up.
2: I kind of glazed over the, well, what are these building blocks and why do they make money? And for that, you need a proper, you have to get back to that definition of a risk premium. Where there's a payer, a payee, a known flow of wealth from the payer to payee, and they're both happily doing it because they're both better off for it. And you go, "What is that? And how do you think about that?" And I think the right way to think about it is to say, "And this is a story we were saying back in 2005, 2006 when we we're putting our ERP together." And you sort of say, "Well, what are some other potential alternative risk premiums between stocks and bonds?" And well, the vol is a pretty easy one where you can say, "What is the vol risk premium?" Well, the vol risk premium is, is insurance. People tend to sit long equities because most people are long equities. People like you want to participate in the upside of equities, but if you want to hedge your downside, you got to buy insurance. Now, like any form of insurance, if you buy house insurance or insurance for your wedding ring, you know you're doing an expected loss. You know the insurance company is expecting you to make a profit on your house insurance, or your but you still happily enter the transaction because you're better off for it. Because if your house burns down, that's a catastrophic loss for you. It's a very, very risky loss. And the insurance company you know, has 10,000 houses and the loss of any one of them is relatively small. They can diversify that risk away. And so the incremental premium you send them adds up, the risk diversifies, and the insurance company is ahead on the trade. And you're ahead on the trade because you've reduced a catastrophic risk down to something controllable and you've given a a little bit of your wealth away. And so both of you are, are in a better state and you both happily enter the transaction, even though there's a flow of wealth from you to the insurance company.
0: I like that perspective. We've always kind of mentioned all this risk premium stuff as there is a willing loser on the other side. I like the idea of there's two parties that enter into a contract happily. And one is willing to part ways to get something back that yeah. may not be monetarily. They're giving money away in order to get a some sort of- And so
2: this is where, I think this is the most important concept from my perspective is I say- like, I, don't, I like that narrative. Yes, yeah, this is the narrative. I think people get the risk premium part a bit wrong because they say, I took risk and I should get paid for that. A fellow saying the risk premium in low volatility stocks is that they look different from the basket and there's a source of risk there and you should get paid for that. And it's like, well, eh, I'm going to push back on that a bit because you do not, you should not expect to get paid for taking risk. That doesn't make any sense at all. And I think it's once again, very egocentric. Why would anyone pay you for taking risk? And if you think about it, if you sit short the S&P 500, you have the exact same volatility as being long the S&P 500, but you don't get paid for that. So is it this sort of nuanced
1: difference between you don't get paid for taking risk, but you do get paid for taking
2: on someone else's unwanted risk? That's one possibility of it. I'm gonna go a little step further and say, you get paid for giving someone a product or a service it's a marketplace. I might have cash. That might be the thing I'm selling. I'm going to get paid for it. I might be offering insurance. There might be other things I'm doing, but I, for sure, someone's only going to pay me if I'm making their life better in some way. And for that, I'm going to get paid. Now, risk comes into it because risk, I'm not getting paid for risk, but risk dictates how much I should get paid. So risk is the cost of it, but it's not the reason for it. And so if you look at it and you say, now, if I look at it from the insurance side, well, then actually the product I'm supplying is a risk reduction. So from that perspective, you can say like an insurance, is a risk reduction, but there are plenty of risk premiums that aren't risk reductions. So as sidebar, you've mentioned
1: quality a bunch of times. I just wanna take a second and dig into that because I've always felt like quality, first of all, what the hell is quality? Every paper defines it completely differently. And they basically combine variables in order to get whatever result they want. And second of all, I've never heard anybody explain to me why anyone should get paid for owning higher quality Other than higher quality stocks tend to also be lower vol, and therefore there may be some sort of leverage aversion story. So square that circle for me.
2: Quality of all the risk premiums is a couple of these are pretty hard to describe because you may sit there and say, I think lower quality should have higher risks and returns, and and maybe you should get paid for investing in low quality. I'm going to go with the, and I'm going to cheat on this one a little bit and say, yeah, I think a little bit is low vol. I think of a little bit is Miller paper that once again, another part, like, And so this is you know, one of my stories from the beginning was, look, every single time you step away from the efficient market hypothesis, what you're really doing is relaxing one of the assumptions. Is it the ability for everyone to borrow and lend at the risk-free rate? Is it homogenous expectations? There's a variety of assumptions. And I'm going to go with the quality is a mixture of low volatility, but also maybe a little bit of that, the more stable set of cash flows, the less dispersion of opinion on the outcome of the cash flows. And dispersion of opinion pushes prices to the right. This is, like, I think, like an interesting take. I know you guys have already talked about this a bit, so I don't want to harp on it too hard. But this is actually one of the really, really big differences between public and private markets. And I think this is super important to understand as well. In the public markets, not perfectly, but close to perfectly, if 10 people have a variety of views around something, and once again, I'm relaxing the everyone's got the same view. So let's say you have a variety of views on something. In the public markets, it sort of somewhat sells for what the average person thinks it's worth. If you say, like, what's, what's the stock? What's the versus? market clearing price. Yeah, some people think, but the thing is, it doesn't require everyone thinking it's worth 100. It requires some people think it's worth 80 and some worth 90 and some worth 100 and some worth 110 and some worth 120. If it ever starts to slip above 100, well, then all the guys who think it's worth 101, 102 will start to sell it back down. And the guys who think it go too high will start to sell it short and bit by bit, it will pull back down to 100. So it will settle in the middle of what the dollar weighted view of what is worth. It doesn't mean everyone thinks it's worth 100, but it will settle around 100. Privates are totally different. If you have 10 people And you're saying, well, how much does that house worth? And one guy says 800 and one guy says 900 and one guy says 1,000. One guy says 1.2. It does not sell for 1,000. It sells for what the most wildly optimistic person is willing to pay. It sits way off to the right. And so private markets by definition, absolutely go to what the craziest person is willing to pay for any asset. And so you can see that very quickly, if you have a dispersion of opinions... If people think it's worth between nine or nine fifty, a thousand, a thousand fifty, and someone and then you have another asset where somebody goes, I don't know if it's worth five hundred, a thousand, or one point five, the wider dispersion of opinions, the more that the price is going to get crazy, crazy high, and so dispersion of opinion pushes prices up. And while it's most extreme in privates, and so the more uncertainty around the price and value of something in the private world, the more that the most wildly optimistic person is going to overpay, the more disappointed they're going to be out of sample as it turns out they've wildly overpaid. In the public market, and I guess the other major difference of the privates is. If everyone on the planet agrees that someone overpaid except for that one person, there's nothing everyone else can do about it because you cannot sell them short.
0: They're buying the full asset or a large portion of that asset, and there's a single person doing that versus in the markets, you'll have it at the margins.
2: Yeah, I can't short you down if you overpaid for a house. All I can do is wait for you to realize you overpaid, which typically takes a recession and bankruptcy. So privates don't random walk the way the market works because the market is like, well, someone thought this, and I think this, and information gets played in the price pretty quickly. In privates, you grind up and slam down because there's no price corrective mechanism until there's a failure.
1: Okay, so I'm receptive to that. I like that explanation. So it seems eminently testable because we should be able to correlate the excess returns of quality with the dispersion in, for example, analyst
2: expectations or earnings expectations or something like that. And you'll see that. So that's one of the definitions of quality is stable, reproducible cash flow or growth rates. And and you will see them. And then also, and this is one of the standard tests is dispersion of analyst opinions. And so, but the thing is though, that obviously also gets you into low vol because low volatility is also going to have a lower dispersion of analyst opinions on the outcome. And it also gets you into value versus growth. So it's a little bit of like, you know, is it a straight up answer for quality? Nah, not exactly. But I think like, you know, these things might be intertwined a little bit. At the end of the day, dispersion of opinion is going to result in underperformance.
1: Okay. I'm going to shift a little bit because I want to talk more about the contemporary factor environment or the contemporary systematic investing environment? Because I think it's interesting. What I think I heard you say is back in 06, 07, you were talking about systematic strategies and risk premium strategies. Institutions were listening. You were getting some risk budget. 2008 was very helpful. The risk budget, at least for your group, went up by call it an order of magnitude. Did we observe that elsewhere? How is the risk premia view or framework being adopted generally across institutions? Is it now well within the Overton window? Is this a, a large, almost a dominant perspective across institutions these days? Are they massive participants in this? And, and if so, does that help to explain why we've observed a pretty well zeroing out of returns across all of the major well-documented Most well-known, squarely in the Overton window, risk premia that everybody know and love, like
2: classic value, classic momentum, size, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I would say yes, yes, and yes. So I'll run through this a little bit. Honestly, this is like what I left teachers to work on because I think there's a huge opportunity in this space right now. Because I would say, you know, back in 2006, and this is my analogy, I've been using it a fair amount, but I think the guys playing alts were kind of like a rowboat going across a lake, leaving a little bit of a ripple behind. I'm going to just make up some numbers here, but I'm going to say the difference between 2006 and 2016 in the alt-risk premium space is there's probably 100 times as much money in it, if not more. And you can see it in the big hedge funds. You can see it in the bank product. You can see it in the internal pension plans. They were all launching this stuff internally. Enormous, enormous uptake, which is great because it really did give people a better diversified portfolio and, and access to more risk premiums and putting the building blocks together. And I'm going to say, like, the alt risk premium guys in 2016 to 2020 are like an ocean liner going across the lake, but they're leaving a giant wake behind. The problem, though, like anything, is when it gets crowded, the expected returns fall, the risks go up, and really the correlations go up as well as more and more like multi strats are doing sort of the same sets of strategies. And so the returns have been attacked and they've been driven down significantly. And this has also obviously crushed the discretionary global macro guys because, as we discussed, the discretionary global macro guys are just backdoor trading the alts. It's very hard to make money persistently over a long period of time being short momentum, being short quality, being short value in the global macro space, being short the carries. And so I think it's suddenly gotten very, very difficult for a lot of players. I'm going to call this a bit of the alchemist curse. Alchemy is like, I want to be able to turn straw into gold without realizing that the second that you figure out how to turn straw into gold, gold becomes worthless. By the time every single person went, you know what? This is a thing now. And every other person piled into the space, like the space itself has become not as good as it was. It doesn't mean it's not worth doing. It's definitely worth doing. Is it going to be a sharp ratio of two again? Almost certainly not because that was probably richer than it should have been. That was part of that complexity or sophistication risk premium of not many people doing it. In the world, as everyone adopts something, its risk should get driven down to a more acceptable or probably normal marginal contribution, marginal expected return per contribution to risk. And is that a sharp ratio of 0.4, 0.5 or 0.6? Don't know. But the other problem is it's almost certainly not for a single factor. It's probably at the basket level. But even at the factor level, or sorry, even at the basket level, you've got these
1: all premium funds with five, six, seven, eight sleeves that have at the best end of the spectrum kind of meandered along and done okay. And then at the other end of the spectrum, some have been just catastrophic over the last two or three years.
2: Yeah. And I think it's been a tough run. I mean, I think like anything, these things are called alt betas and we called them alt betas. And I spent some time calling them alt betas because I was trying to convince people these are risk premiums and and that they have a positive spectrum return. So they're not really alpha alpha. And I think you have to be careful that you're not doing yourself a disservice because like anything, it can be done well or poorly. Just because there's an underlying risk premium doesn't mean that everyone who plays the game should expect to capture it or expect to capture it well or equally.
0: And one of the questions that I have is when you look at the space, how much of that space is simply going, looking at the white papers, the supposed benchmarks of these factors and saying that, that is the trend factor. That is the low wealth factor. They're zeroing in on these specific parameter sets, and then running hundreds of millions of dollars on it, talking about the weight that they're leaving behind them, these hotspots, these overcrowded spaces within the risk premium, there's got to be opportunity to do better by doing it differently.
2: I would think so. I I mean, I think different is super important. And I think there's different and better. And to say like, just because there's an alt and there's a payer and a pay, can everyone collect the same? I think like if you you go to like, there's some examples you can say like clearly and obviously not. Look at market making. Market making is a risk premium. What are you doing as a market maker is you're taking on a trade or a block and, and you're working into the market over some period. You own the risk. You're, and the bid asset you charge is effectively what you need to get paid to own that market risk for that time. And so market making is a risk premium for sure. Like, and you're going to find bit, a bit that anything that persistently makes money, there's a risk premium behind it. It could be liquidity provision. It could be insurance. It could be a bunch of other things like transfers of utilities of other sorts. But I'm going to say there's always a risk premium behind the persistent winners. But that does not mean that every guy who goes, I'm going to become a market maker will do well. And what you'll find in market making is you it know, becomes pretty obvious is that like of only a small number of people collect all of it. Because to win in that space, you have to be really, really, really fast. You have to be the fastest. And if you're not like one of the, like, the fastest or the second fastest, then you're not going to get any of it. So clearly though there's a risk premium, it doesn't mean every player going to collect is going to collect it equally well. And I say like, it's the same thing for all of them is that there absolutely is active management and alpha in the collection of these all datas. And so I think that's where the industry has gotten burned a little bit and where a lot of players have gotten burned and, and it doesn't help everyone when the institutional investors try and get it as cheaply as possible, stick their finger in the socket, have a terrible outcome, and then and then lose faith. In lose the whole faith system. in the whole thing. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, there was such a trend for the institutions to
1: go to the banks and just buy whatever their risk premium strategies were through a swap, and they were the most naive, simple implementations imaginable. And two or three years later, they're just abandoning them in droves, and they've had they've been burned. And I think a lot of big institutions have been burned, even on diversified premia. Allocations. I'm kind of wondering whether or not we went through sort of a honeymoon phase with Altpremia, maybe three, four years ago. The honeymoon phase resulted in a massive overallocation. Premias have been squeezed. In many cases, they've been negative for two or three years. How has that affected the psyche of the big decision makers and institutions who probably took a long time to get behind these in the first place? By the time they get behind them, they're already well within the Overton window. They're already well allocated to, and the premiums have largely been squeezed away. So their entire allocated experience has been negative. How is that affecting people's psyche? How are decision makers moving forward with all premium strategies?
2: Yeah, so I would say... And I guess there's two parts to this. And this is, I think, the curse of systematic investing to a certain extent, is people think, well, anyone can do it or I can do it or it's simple, or it's an alt. And when it's done badly, it does quite badly. And I'm not saying alt or premium guys have done badly. I would say it with some pride, like our group of teachers has continued to do quite well over the last five or six years. So it's doable, but I think for sure the problem is like and when I said from the beginning, there's a bunch of people who A don't get it or don't understand it, or it doesn't really resonate with them. And there's a bunch who hate it. If you're coming at it going like this is the antithesis of everything I think proper investing is. And so between those two sets, they're waiting for a fail point. And so it's difficult because when a value investor has a bad run, some people are like, well, well, I like them even better right now. That trade went against them. That's an even Yeah, they've gotten cheaper. Exactly. Yeah. And when a systematic investing has a bad run, it's like, see, I told you. I told you it was no good. I think you're still constantly fighting that. Now on the other side of it, a bunch of people bought in and like legitimately, a bunch of the products they bought into have not been very good. And this is the other challenge of investing in systematic investing. And like a lot of institutions, the people buying or investing in the systematic investing who've never done it themselves, it's very, very, very hard for them to distinguish a good story from a bad story. And this is, I think, is one of the biggest challenges in the space. Is- it's the most fundamental pervasive challenge
1: in investing, in my view. Absolutely, 100%. Like I said, the lingua franca of the decision makers is completely different than the language that the people that build these strategies speak. And I go to conferences and you can tell immediately that there are two completely different constituencies listening to a speaker. There's the younger, trained, quantitatively oriented analysts. They're not decision makers, but they completely understand what the speaker is saying. And you've got the old guard decision makers who hold all the power, who make all
2: the decisions and have no clue what the speaker is saying and are completely disengaged from the conversation. Absolutely. You're totally right. That's the first challenge. And then the second challenge is like marketers are good and they hear a good story and they'll repeat a good story. And and good ways of explaining things get caught up in the marketplace very quickly. And sooner or later, everyone's pitch sounds the same, regardless of what their actual process is underneath it. I mean, everyone says the same four or five things. And then how do you separate the noise from the signal in that world as an investor? It's super hard. Now, one of the seats I had at teachers was not only was I running the internal systematic group, but I got to invest in managers. So I've talked to hundreds of managers. I was gonna ask you about that. I'm glad we are getting here. And so Obviously, the first thing we tell them is look, I run an internal group. I run a prop shop. I don't want to hear about your signals. I don't, I'm not, you know, but what I want to talk to you about is model building philosophy, portfolio construction, risk systems. My job was to sit there and just push and poke and tease and ask questions. And at the end of it, go sort of my understanding of the space to get a general sense of the thought process of the individual. But I'm just not sure how many investors could do that.
0: Here's a question for you because you have this group of risk premium. Every time we talk to an allocator, And they look at what we're doing. They say, well, why would I pay you anything for this if I can get it for free? That's the biggest thing that we come up against. And then we show the excess alpha Mm -hmm. to the players. And that still isn't enough to want them to pay more or pay it as it is alpha rather than a beta.
2: I mean, the the thing is you're up against is the banks do two things differently. A- they're really, really like obviously they're the best salespeople. Like they're very, very good salespeople. They have connections, they have relationships, they have friends at all the pension plans. And so there's like that, you're up against that to start with. Secondly, the banks only charge management on performance fee. And so they get to cheat the back test because they actually don't care how it does out of sample. And so what you'll see with some of these banks will be on literally version 250. You launch it, it does terribly, you kill it, you start it again, it does terribly. And so you're constantly showing back tests. And so this is where you're up against it. And I have reverse engineered 20 or 30 or f- at some point you stop sticking your finger in the socket, but like over and over again, because the bank will come to you like, Hey, we got this great product and you go, okay, let me take a look at it. And then you have to undo every single one of their cheats. And there are many, many, many cheats. And so the typical bank product is full of cheats. Now, whether they're deliberately cheating or just building badly up for others to decide, but at the end of the day, a really nice back test sells a story and they don't really care how it does out of a sample. And the vast majority of decision makers don't know how to tell the difference between a hacked back test and a robust back test. Well, and the hacked back test is it can be pretty sophisticated. I, mean, I remember we had one bank come to us with a sharp ratio two process, and the, f- the second we said, okay, like we're going to take a look at this and build it before we think about buying it, and they went, oh, okay, and they literally went, I think it's only one point four. So they actually wow. talked it down the second we said we we're going to test it, and then we went, what assets did you use for this? And they went, oh, we use these seven currencies. And like those seven currency pairs. Why didn't you use these other seven? Oh, liquidity. I'm like, really? You think the Canadian dollars got more liquidity than the yen? And they went, eh. And of course, you test all 14. And they just took the losing seven out and kept the losing seven. And it's like, okay, so that took the sharp ratio down to 0.7. <laughs> and then we kept going and kept going. And layer after layer and decision after decision, we got this thing like, like down to a zero. And so at the end of the day, though, it was like, and look, there are, of course, an infinite number of ways to cheat a back test. But it takes a certain amount of expertise, I think, to reverse engineer and to understand it. That doesn't help the trust in the industry. No, no. And not to say, like, I think alignment and fees is super important. Like, if you're an investor, you should always pay a performance fee.
0: You said you managed a prop desk internally, but you also allocated to managers. First of all, what warranted an allocation to them, given what you know and what you just explained? And then what fee do those managers that provide alpha on top of whatever premiums we already know exist what fee is appropriate? Okay,
2: so I would say two or three bits to this. First of all, teachers was always a bit complicated on the outside looking in because every department of teachers actually had an internal and external mandate. So our, our public equity group would have external managers and internal group, like our commodity guys, our TAA guys, our capital market guys, our privates, like obviously did internal and external. And then we also had a group that was just called AI, alternative investments, which was just hedge funds. So to make that super complicated, I started looking in like no doubt. What I was using managers for was to complement my internal model suite. I had a lot of the stuff built and I think I had a, like a pretty good process and a pretty good attack internally. And so what I was looking for for managers was groups who were complementary to what I was doing.
0: By complementary, do you mean minimizing the risk that your model wasn't fully filled out? And if their process aligned with your process, they were in or did their process have to be broadly similar in terms of being broadly correct about the parameter set rather than specifically wrong, but attacking different areas of the market.
2: I would say orthogonal, however, obviously looking for things that are like completely uncorrelated. If you found guys who are highly correlated, well, then now you have a fee problem because if you do three quarters of it internally and, and they've got this little alpha process and that's the thing you want, but it comes with, you know, it's 2% risk in that and it's 8% risk in a bunch of stuff you already have. Well, then your fees are really, really high for that 2%. We were looking for guys who are uncorrelated in my group. And uncorrelated typically meant some crazies doing some weird little things or the big guys are doing stuff that we couldn't attack ourselves with a really, really diversified, either they had some advantage in resources or headcount or data or techniques or sophistication. And so we would go to a conference and like, you know, investing in managers was like my third job. It was like five to 10% of the time I had. We were trying to be as efficient as possible about it. And we would go to these conferences once or twice a year. And because you're teachers, you could do this. You could talk to all the systematic guys and you'd say, like, you'd send out and say, like, look, send us your daily returns. And so we get daily returns from 200, 250 managers. We put them up against our internal model suite and just say, okay, I want to find the 30 or 40 who I can't explain with what I'm doing internally. But what I can say with confidence is I could explain the returns of 80 or 90% of all the managers out there with what I was doing internally. Like like obviously most people are sitting on some form of the alts, including the discretionary guys and the credit guys. And so you find like, you know, 30 or 40 doing something differently. And then some of those look like, like, you know, oh, here's a CTA who's only 50% correlated to my CTA. That's potentially interesting. Let's have a conversation. And then you get there and you say, like, some of them were like, well, the reason they're 50% correlated is they go well, we're only trend following stocks and bonds. It's like, okay, well, that's a bad diversification because they're, they're actually just doing like a more idiosyncratic thing. But then you'd run into guys who are doing like some really cool stuff. And, and so then you look at it and you say, like, as long as I got confident with the, with the model building philosophy, I could talk about risk. I could talk about portfolio construction. I about, and I would dig and dig and dig and dig until I got, you know, how comfortable. And I, I was, it was funny because I was talking to a manager that we invested in just recently. And he goes, I've never had a due diligence process like I went through with you because we thought for sure you weren't going to invest in us because you like, poked us he over must and have over loved again. you throughout. And at the end of the day, I was like, okay, we argued over some stuff. And I remember what we were arguing over, which was like, like I literally remember this from 10 years later, but he was like, you know, should we be using expanding window or a rolling window? And, I, and, I, and like, we were having this big debate over, because like, he was a machine learning guy. And, he, and I was like, but at the end of it, I went, okay, I like the rigor of your thought process. I don't agree with it, but that was what I was trying to get to typically. And then you we say, well, how do you pay fees for that? I would pay full fees. Now, the way you think about fees, though, and this is the other piece. Is we like, talked
0: about this as well. Yeah, The
2: amount of misthought on fees blows my mind, but you get very, very proudly, people would say, oh, I only pay one in 10, or I only pay one in 20, or I only pay, you know, it's like, but what volatility are you investing in? Because at the end of the day, the volatility of the process is what you're buying. I mean, you can put $100 million in a 10 vol process or $50 million in a 20 vol process, and those are almost identical from an economic perspective. But everyone knows if I put $100 million, I should pay twice as much fees. This is one of the great mysteries of talking to allocators, this
1: complete lack of understanding uh, about they're dying to invest in four and five vol market neutral strategies at two and 20 when the entire fee is going to consume the premium that they may be able to generate and they don't have any sense for capital efficiency or the fact that you need to have a certain risk budget for this strategy to have an impact on the portfolio. These all seem to be foreign concepts for a very large swath of what would otherwise be pretty sophisticated alligators.
0: The conversation is always, well, are you still getting, even today, are you still getting two and 20? I'm like, well, what do you want? What's the maximum you'll pay? And like one in 10 is the most we'll go. That's great. Then I'll give you my 10 ball product. My 20 ball product runs at two and 20. My 10-ball product wants it one in 10. So if fees matter to you, we'll give you exactly what you're asking and what you're getting elsewhere, right? And that blew his mind. He didn't understand what that meant.
2: It kills me. And you always hear the, well, I don't think of management fee that way. I think of it as covering operational risks. And you know, it's like, but at the end of the day, the 20 is fine. The 20 doesn't matter because that 20, 25, 15, it's the same no matter what volume you're running. It's the management fee. If someone pays two and 20 for a five-ball, that's like paying four and 20 for a 10-ball and no one pays four and 20. But people happily pay two and 20 for a five vol. Or I've seen some crazy,
0: like one and a half and 20 for a two vol. All the market neutrals, all that stuff. Who pays
2: seven and a half and 20 for anything? And the answer is like those guys, they just don't, they don't know it. And so that that to me is like, that's a crazy thing for me. I'm kind of agnostic as to whether a manager runs five, 10 or 20% vol, as long as the management fee adjusts properly, because I'm just as happy to, I can put more cash in or less cash in. Typically, if you're doing it through a managed account, you're already getting leverage anyway. Is there a slight, 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 slight preference for someone running 20 vol versus 10? Like Maybe a slight cash efficiency, but it's not my concern. I'm much more interested in the um, you know management fee per unit of vol, get the right vol, and then, and then I decide how much dollar risk I want. I want $10 million of dollar risk in this manager. If they're 20 vol, I'll put $50 million in.
0: So what was the dollar, just generally per unit of risk, what was acceptable to you? If it was an orthogonal bet on you understood their process, what was acceptable at the institutional level if they truly delivered?
2: Yeah, between one and a half and two and twenty. I'm also picking the guys who are not doing the alts, who are just doing like the alpha, who are just doing special stuff. And like, yeah, yeah, you pay for that at a good vault. If I was doing one and a half, two and twenty, those some of those guys would be running twenty ball. If you're in a, a one and twenty to one and a quarter and twenty at ten ball, I think like that's right for alpha. So just to shift gears a little bit again, because you mentioned that the I mean, I observed
1: many of the big alt premium funds have struggled over the last three, four, five years. And You said that the internal teachers group has continued to do well. How has your thinking shifted or evolved or how have you adapted in order to continue to create persistent returns in this environment?
2: So I think a lot of it has to do with carefully building the models in the first place. And like I said, from that very beginning, that very, very passive diversifying all sources of risk approach. When people think about mean variance optimization or or portfolio construction and risk, they typically are thinking market risk. And market risk is, you know, like a stock could go up, it could go down. I don't know. Like, And there's a dispersion of possible outcomes. And so you think of risk as being a dispersion of possible outcomes. And you know that through diversification, if I have four or five uncorrelated things, my dispersion of possible outcomes shrinks. There's tons of other things in investing that result in dispersion of outcomes. One of them is, well, what model did I run? And obviously I think it's pretty clear to say different models are going to have different dispersion of outcome. And that's, and if I have different, if I put a portfolio of models together, maybe I can reduce my dispersion of outcome. But then even within a model, you go, well, what parameters did I use? If I, if I choose a 25-day look back or a 50-day look back, I'm going to have a dispersion of outcome. And it's like, well, can I diversify across that? And the answer is yes. And then you go, what other sources of risk are in the model? Because at the end of the day, diversification and, and portfolio construction and robust portfolio construction is about minimizing all sources of risk. You don't want any single overarching source of risk to dominate. Minimizing uncompensated sources of risk. Uncompensated right? sources of risk, exactly. And that, I mean, that's just investing in general. You should always, always do that. But you go. Well, it's really sometimes kind of hard to know what are your major sources of risk. Like we, I, the one thing I would always push back against multi-strat managers is the guys who would proudly say, "I have got 20 independent processes and I run them all through a mean-variance optimization." I go, or any kind of optimization. I go, I hate that because you go, I got 20 independent things. I got this awesome source of independence and all these different things. And then I overlay on top of all 20, one single giant source of assumption or parameter risk, which is, I don't know, what's the correlation between them? Or what's this, what's the, you know, and suddenly you go, all 20 are going to be contaminated by this one thing. And suddenly my, my giant source of risk may not be 20 independent models. It may be something to do with that optimization at the end. That's a terrible source of extra risk on top that contagious everything. If they're beta neutralizing, they might have a single look back to a beta and suddenly like you can get caught on all of that. And suddenly, so you go and kind of go, what are the sources of assumption risks that are driving dispersion of outcome? And in any good model, you try and minimize those across the board. Equal weighting them introduces its own set of risks though as well,
1: because you're now naturally assuming that they're all equally correlated. You can't completely avoid those assumption risks by just equally allocating across the different, for example, and I think you mentioned this earlier, but A 180-day look back on trend is very highly correlated with a 200-day look back on trend and rather uncorrelated with a 20-day look back on trend on the same market. Well, it's the same kind of thing on carry or quality or low vol or what have you. Depending on
2: how you specify it, it's going to be more or less correlated. And the answer is uh, only in very, very special cases and for the parameters as you said like one of the ways you can equate across your parameters is if you've diversified them properly and diversifying them takes a bit of careful thought because something like a look back might require geometric growth we said like a 50 100 200 like those guys are going to be like the average cross correlation term between a 50 100 and a 200 is roughly the same and so i can i can add those guys together some parameters it's log some is linear when it comes down to model building this is one of the like if you've got a couple issues that you have to solve for the spacing between them is super important. So I can equal weight. And the other thing is, well, what's my start and what's my end? And those are the two basic decisions you have to make when you parameterize anything. If you get those right, and that's like, I think by a combination of thought and then just looking back to see like, well, did I get it right from the correlation perspective? Then you can equal weight across parameters. The only way you can equal weight across models is if you can build effectively independent things. And so that's a big question is, can I build effectively independent things? And effective independence at the asset class level is super hard because correlations float all over the place. And when I said stocks and bonds are on average uncorrelated over the last 100 years, most of the time they're positive and they've been very, very negative recently. And, and at the end of the day, wow, well, that's a world difference. And if you get that wrong, you can be in all sorts of trouble. And that's the other, by the way, if we're going to splice this thing and move it around, the other major problem, the challenge that people have against risk parity is A, it's levered bonds. And I'm going, eh, think of it as levered bonds or think of it as delevered equity. Or really, people think like risk parity is stock bond put together. You can also say like part of risk parity might be commodity bond is the package that's a pretty good package, commodities and bonds, because what's the major risk to bonds is inflation and whether do commodities do well in inflation. Like The commodity bond package is almost as compelling as the stock bond package, but all three of them is actually a much, much better process. And and so you kind of say like- And you get closer and closer to a normal distribution by combining them too. It looks better and better as you solve more and more of the risks. The stocks and bond correlations float all over the place. And so handling that at the portfolio was a little bit tricky. You've got to figure out a way to dynamically capture the change in correlations. And, and so I think that's something we put into our process and that really helped us in 2008 was we put it back in, in 2005, 2006. It was very, very effective, but at the strategy level, correlations are much, much more stable than they are at the asset level. It comes down to careful construction of models, but if I had like 20 models and it turns out three of them are 0.6 or 0.7 or 0.5 correlated, I'm just going to slam those together and call those one thing. And so once I've got effectively independent things. Well, now portfolio construction is super simple because as we said before, it's either equal weight by expected risk or equal weight by expected sharp ratio. And I'm going to get to Chrisman's one over n at some point, two at some point. But the beauty of, of uncorrelated things is that portfolio construction is so easy and it's very, very robust. And if you can get the risk right and you can keep the correlations independent, really optimization is no longer necessary at the model level. That's a very, very, robust. I can take you through this in lots of different ways, but that's a very, no, no robust th- that's definitionally true.
1: It's just that the trick is First of all, getting strategies that you have high confidence are going to be persistently uncorrelated. Like you can imagine, let's say carry and trend. Well, you're going to have lots of periods where carry signals are extremely aligned with trend signals, and you're going to end up with everybody on the same side of the trampoline. Now, carry and trend historically have not a zero correlation, but call it a 0.3, but that can lean into point eight, point nine, and it can lean away in a point. So it's, I think you've got to have some eye on the correlations of all the different constituents of the portfolio, as well as the correlations between the different strategies. And it's a dynamic process. So
2: I think it, I'm interested to hear how you address that at a strategic level rather than addressing it dynamically. First of all, everything I ever did was always addressing it dynamically. So for sure. So the question then is how much pressure you put on the correlation piece of it versus how much you put on the risk piece and how do you capture that? And I would just say, look, I'm sure you guys did it the same, like in many different ways as well. And we and we did it in many different ways. And we, we would come at it as many different ways as we could optimize, we would optimize. And we would try and reduce the pressure to any single one of them. But just to say, carry and trend are transformations of assets. The assets themselves are very non-constant correlations. The carry and trend have probably less non-constant correlations, but possibly like ish, like a fair amount. I really spent a lot of time trying to build models that are a generation past that are even more stable from the correlation perspective. And so, so you can either attack it dynamically at the portfolio construction level, or you can try and do it at the single generation level. I would say this is what I've been working on for the last little bit is I think I got a whole bunch of models that are properly uncorrelated with each other through construction. And I think that just makes life way easier because I'd rather, I'd rather treat my models as independent agents than to try and handle them all in a giant mean variance or any kind of optimization at the end, personally. Can you do it with carry and momentum? It might be harder. And at which point you have to handle that risk. And then the question is how you do it robustly. So the sort of next evolution
1: thinking for you is, is it an objective of engineering sets of strategies that are designed to be orthogonal? And or to what extent are you, have you just sort of migrated to thinking about the portfolio from a strategy level rather than at a holding level? Scope that a little bit more for me.
2: This is going to get a little bit more technical. What we call forward-looking risk and backward-looking risk, I think is what you're getting at here. So like a strategy, imagine you had model one and model two and model three. You say on average, those guys are uncorrelated. There's a lot to that statement, by the way, because models...
1: When you say model, is it a model... An indicator on one single
2: security? Are they all cross-sectional? Because this gets complicated fast. I would call a model an idea. You say trend following is an idea. What's trend following is an idea? It's like, well, you can say it in a sentence or two. You say, I look at historical returns and I assume they're going to persist in some way. So like a very, and then how you do it, moving average, crossover, breakout, regression, serial correlation, like there's lots of different ways you can kind of come at that. But the idea is still, I think, you know, some persistence in returns. It could be cross-sectional or absolute. Like a model is an idea. And I would say from a robust perspective, except in very, very few cases where they're clearly just very asset class specific and there's nothing that resonates or or doesn't work outside the asset class, I would want to have the same models and the same parameters running on every single asset that I have. So if I've got 60 assets I'm trading, I'm trading the exact same thing on all 60. Now that thing is an idea and that has a return stream. And you look at that return stream and it might have a sharp ratio. Let's say it's a sharp ratio of one. And you look at it and go, there's a sharp ratio of one, there's a process. And here's another sharp ratio of one process and you put them together and you should have a 1.4 if they're uncorrelated. That's sort of true and sort of not. And I'd say it's very true at the right time frequency. And so this is something we spend a lot of time researching and working on and debating because underlying in each of those models is in fact, I don't know, let's say they're both trading the S&P 500. And so even though the models diversify and, and, and say how do models diversify? Like let's say you've got a, a weekly model and a monthly model. And the weekly model goes in and out once a week and the monthly model goes in and out once a month. And no models do that, but let's just say like you know the average holding periods are quite different. And those guys are gonna be relatively uncorrelated on average over over a longer period. And so you can say, okay, I've got two things that are relatively uncorrelated over a longer period and they've got the same sharp ratio and I should put equal risk in both of them and I'll get 40% higher sharp ratio, the square root of two times higher. Here's the main problem with that statement or the challenge in behind it is that while the models are diversifying on average, instantaneously, there is no diversification. There's only addition and subtraction. And so like instantaneously, imagine these models are each just a single signal for a second. And, and one of them is either long short the S&P on any given day. And the other one's long, short of the on any given day. There's only four outcomes. They're either both long, both short, or they're canceling. And you look at that signal and it goes from two to, to minus two to zero. And it doesn't go from 1.4 to minus 1.4. In fact, if you have 10 models, it's possible that all 10 are long the S&P that day. And that day, you've got 10 times as much S&P exactly. if you treat them as independent agents. You don't have the square root of time, like three times the S&P, which is what the diversification assumes. And so when you actually, when you diversify across models or across signals on a given asset, then statistically what you end up with is with a process with excess kurtosis at the daily level, that you have fat tails. Because even though you assume three times diversification, occasionally you're going to have a much bigger than three times bet. Now you've got two ways to handle this. The first one, if you think it's a problem. Because by the weekly and monthly level, through Central Limit Theorem, it reduces back to normality. So at the weekly and monthly level, it doesn't matter. And if if you have two things that are independent and you put them together at the weekly or monthly level, you're going to see that 40% higher Sharpe ratio for the same risk. Instantaneously, you could have significantly higher or lower bets on any single thing at any single time. And if something happens in that market, if S&P has a 5% down day and you happen to be long 10 units over that day, watch out, you're in all sorts of trouble. And so it's a really interesting portfolio construction Question and challenge is instantaneous risk versus long-term risk and figuring out how to play those two guys against each other. And really has a lot to do with your utility or the utility of your investors. Um, but the most extreme form of protecting it, which you can do, so you let's call this, you can buy insurance on that, is if I have 20 independent models, instead of running them as independent agents, in other words, like, imagine I had $100 and I put $5 in each and let them do their own thing, I can turn them into a voting machine. So if I turn them into a voting machine that that literally reduces the signal to a one or a minus one. So if if 11 models are long the S&P, you're long one unit of S&P. If 15 are long S&P, you're long one unit of S&P. If nine are long and 11 are short, you're short a full unit of S&P. Always a one or a minus one. That process is going to have the exact same fatness as the S&P. It's always long or short one unit. It's got the exact same kurtosis as the S&P 500, which is great. And the cost of that is a huge amount of the diversification benefit of all my models. I may have given up half my Sharpe ratio to make myself completely normal at the daily level. So that's a, I can buy that insurance if that's important to me, but that's a pretty expensive piece of insurance. The other way is to just treat them as completely independent agents and let them go. The only way that's, what and we do a lot of work on this, that is actually the right thing to do as long as they are properly independent. If your models are not fully independent, but in fact are correlated, they're all 0.5s, you have to squash. I think that's only
1: true if, You assume that the return streams are all IID for the individual strategies and in a single period model. But if you've got a, and that they're normally distributed. So if they happen to take a loss at the same time, then you're going to expect that loss to mean revert over time, right? And I'm not sure that that's true if there's fat tails in any of the individual strategies So in other words, there's a violation of the conditional correlation, even though the unconditional correlation would lead you to believe that they're uncorrelated. And also, I'm not sure it holds on a multi-period basis because the compounding of losses, when all of the strategies take a loss at the same time, there may not be at a multi-period level an expectation of mean reversion. Anyway, this is a this is a fabulous topic.
2: I can see why it's heavily debated. We will talk about that one offline. I see what you're saying. And so I was giving a very, very simple example of ones minus ones and, and just showing that when you add a bunch of models together, if your position is not also one or minus one, you're gonna have a fatter tail at a daily level.
1: No, no, I'm I'm more curious about the assertion that independent agents. You can either be concerned about return dispersion or volatility or losses at a short horizon. Or you can be concerned about maximizing utility at intermediate horizons because of central limit theory that one will wash out the
2: other. Oh, not completely washed. I think you're absolutely right to say fat tails will also have more geometric drain than a normal process. But those
1: fat tails are a function of the conditional correlations, right? It's the
2: So here's another way to think about it, though. And this is the most extreme form of it. And this is really where you can kind of get yourself to the thought experiment and and figure out for yourself what you get comfortable with. If you only showed yourself or investors monthly returns... Does the investor care that you created those monthly returns by trading 22 days out of the month at 1% risk or trading just one day of the month at the square root of 22 times risk? It's an interesting question because at the end of the day, monthly returns are monthly returns are monthly returns and who knows? Now, if the market itself is non-normal, is it still no? If the market itself is fat-tailed, does it make a difference? Well, yeah. I mean, again, the question is,
1: to what extent do you have confidence that the intramonth losses are going to wash out or average out at the monthly scale? And I think that is the conversation that is going to be really fun to
2: take offline. We'll take that okay. offline. There's a lot to that one. Anyway, so the trade-off, of course, being between instantaneous short-term risk and how much you care about that versus maximum sharp ratio at some higher level, like weekly or monthly. I will acknowledge that there's probably a trade-off there that you can actively make a choice about. And only to say, if you are worried that your boss is gonna come down after a big one day loss and shut you down, well, then you have have to worry about the left side a bit more, and if you don't, if you only show monthly returns to a manager, you probably move towards the right a little bit, but you always have to be aware that an overbet does expose you. If the market itself is completely normal, then it will normalize away. If you overbet for a given day over a month, it probably normalizes by the end of the month pretty cleanly, if not perfectly. If you're only trading one day a month and that one day is a really, really fat day, well, then you got to be super careful because it will take years to normalize that away. And so there's just a little bit of, of understanding that piece of it. And then there comes down to, of course, the, the much more existential question, which we debate about internally endlessly, is the how confident could you ever be with a model that only traded one day a month? Because how much testing we need to do to say I'm confident, that's a sharp ratio of one, where the one that- Yeah, tra- to have a sample size that gives you something meaningful. This is where we got into the big, if you could be confident, and then and my buddy would always go, but you can't. And so we'll we come around that one over and over and over again. but to say And we kind of went down the middle. If we had models that traded uh, in non-constant risk, a really non-constant risk, you'd have to pull back on them a little bit just to handle some of those effects. But anyway, it's it's always an interesting discussion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. All right. I have a question about, because I think a lot of people on this that are listening to this are probably aspiring PMs. And given your trajectory through teachers, you're launching your own fund, your own firm, do you have any, I mean, what advice would you give to a, an aspiring PM quant or non-quant
2: coming into the business right now? It's interesting because the first thing I would always say, and this is going to be the boring side of it, but I would just say, I would start with this, is is I would say, get your CFA. When I got my CFA 17, 18 years ago, and I loved it as an exam. I came out of the actuarial exams, which I felt were like a hoop to jump through and like you know, and just giving a pint of blood to demonstrate you could do it. I hit the CFA and went, oh my God, this is the first time in a long time I studied where I feel like I'm way better off for it. Doesn't mean I loved every piece of it. You no, know, I don't think everyone likes every part of the CFA, but at the end of the day, what it does is it gets you an inch deep and a mile wide. And you get to look through that and go, did I find the, the stock piece interesting or the bond piece or the portfolio construction or the risk or the... And I think, and at that point, then it's up to you to go a mile deep in that topic. And so I'd say like, the CFA, even like 15 years ago, wasn't a, like, hey, look at me, I've got it. It was really, it became a very quick question in the industry. It was like, well, if you don't have it, why haven't you got it? It's one of those things where I think you really should do like coming out of school. It's, it's for you, but I think it also, it really establishes that the statement of saying, like, I'm interested in this. I would say the next thing is, Investing, I'm going to draw this analogy relative to actuarial science. (laughs) I'm going to bother a bunch of people when I do this, but I would say actuarial science is like coloring in when they give you those pictures where they paint by number and it's like, you have to paint like a number three is yellow and like coloring within the lines. And the entire purpose of it was to create something that anyone else coming along could replicate exactly. And I chafed under that environment. I would say it's fair to say. And I would say investing is like the exact opposite. You have this blank canvas. And it is freeform art now. You like There are people who make money trading global macro, central bank, alt-risk, premiums, discretionary credit, distress. There are guys making money trading tick data on the S&P 500. It is such a wide and incredible set of things you can do. But if you are going to try and pry money out of other people's hands, it's to me, investing is about creativity. And so intelligence, I hate to say it, is like commoditized, dime a dozen thing. Intelligence is, is like, you got to have enough of it to be good enough. There's a certain amount of intelligence required to do this. I think investing is about creativity and about passion and then enough you know, intelligence to get the stuff what you need. But it's that intersection of creativity and passion and intelligence, I think is super, super important. And that's what you have to demonstrate. And not to say those are easy things to demonstrate, but if you're trying to impress someone or if you're trying to get into the space, you've got to know that, look, I think in investing, if you want to get excess returns, you have to be doing different things. Like you, you can't be doing the same thing as everyone else and expect to do better than them. And so the question is, well, how do you do different things than everyone else? And this is an existential question for every single manager and for every single hedge fund. If you're doing the same thing, you know. And so a hedge fund can be different because it's got a, a massive protective moat. It's got resources, technology, infrastructure, something that allows it to defend its moat. Or it can be different because it's got creative, intelligent people who come up with new ideas, who are passionate. And then and in behind that, the most important thing for the culture of the hedge fund to support, that is the right culture to support and nurture that creativity. And if you run into a culture where it's like every single person feeding ideas up to an individual and it's not a culture of open discussion and open debate, like it's not going to work. If you're in a world where you're trying to be creative and you're trying to be innovative, it also requires I really think open and honest debate with people who you enjoy debating with to really tease out ideas because I think like the most dangerous thing a quant can do and can ever do is sit in a corner by themselves and try and build a model on their own. I think that's very risky. It's very dangerous. It's just too many assumptions. There's too many cheats. There's too many cheats to yourself, too many mistakes. And also I really think I've always thought investing is a collaborative process and it has to be. So from my perspective, if you're a PM coming into it and you're trying to get into systematic investing, and now there's a toolkit, a set of toolkits you need to have. It's math, it's statistics. It's not crazy complicated math or statistics. It doesn't have to be anyway. I know the machine learning can get a bit wild. It's computer science and it's some finance. So it's a pretty broad, I think like this is why I think it's such a cool place. Like it's such a neat intersection of of a lot of disciplines. But I think a lot of people who are really, really successful come at it from the side. I almost think like being classically trained has been a detriment for a lot of investors for quite a while. Everything we did at Teachers, we kind of made up on our own. We were given incredibly incredibly nurturing supportive environment. We had some really cool people around and, and then we just went at it. We debated. We, like, we got kicked off floors all the time because we were shouting at each other, but it was always it was always positive. It was always supportive, but you know, it was trying to get to the answer. And if you don't trust the people that you're working with, they like, don't agree with you. The last thing you want is a culture where people go, yeah, I, I don't agree with what you're saying, but that's your thing and I'm going to do my thing and we're just going like, to give each other our thing. I think that's very, very dangerous. To me, that in all of that, what do you tell the PM, the aspiring PM? There's a lot of skills mixed into all of that. Communication is super important. The ability to work in a team is super important. The ability to hear a good idea and adopt it or to have a good idea and sell it, like those are equally important skills. Or have a
0: good idea that doesn't work out after discussing it and not having your ego bruised enough yeah, oh, yeah, and drop it and move on.
2: It has to be open, honest. Debate and discussion, and the ability to look. When I put my team together at teachers, like one of the first things I did is I went, We're all sinking and swinging together. I don't want anyone coming and going, I built this model and it did well this year. and I want to get paid more than someone else. You know, it's like when someone comes to the group and starts to sell an idea or pitch an idea, or I were going to work on it. And if you don't like it, you have to, that's on you, and you have to debate it until you either get comfortable or you don't until we get to a point where everyone's comfortable. And then after the fact, we all own it, and that's super, super important to me. I really don't like siloed approaches where this is mine and this is yours. And I think you get all sorts of local optimization problems, and you get all. And not to, I just don't think the product is as good. Hundred percent. And I think firms that are able to get that right have a huge advantage. That was a meandering and probably not perfect answer to your question. I, I could probably soundbite it better. <laughs> it's like you know, no, there was a pearl necklace in there. That was great. You, you got to be smart. You got to be a good communicator. You got to be a good team player. You gotta be passionate. At the end of the day, though, this is like, there's like what you're trying to do is, is I think investing to me is like you create a puzzle for yourself and then you try and solve it and then you try and solve it again and then you try and come up with a new puzzle and like I, that's what I feel like the space is.
0: Much like your career, one of the things I think to note is that you don't have to do all those things at once. These are skills you develop over your career.
2: Okay, so the, next, thing, find a good mentor. It's <laughs> like it's at the end of the day, don't try to reinvent the wheel yourself. It takes a long time and it's terrible. Find a good group of people and learn from them and pick up on it. Yeah, definitely. But I mean. My other point is like, I think this stuff is so much fun. So I always say, like, for sure, do it. It's an incredible career and you're never going to find yourself bored. 100%.
1: Well, I can pretty well guarantee that no one's going to listen to this at more than 1.25 times. <laughs> Maybe a that, point
0: five for the first time. Very high level of confidence. Unless they go statement. back in time.
1: <laughs> That's right. Chris, this has been really fun and really illustrative. And I think there's going to be a wide group of listeners who are going to get a lot out of this. And I want to thank you for coming in and for your time and for sharing. And being so open about your experience and your thinking, and looking forward to taking a lot of these different threads offline. There's a lot of grist for the mill.
0: Even that first meeting, that first lunch, it was a little bit of what we have internally here a little bit of contentious battle, different opinions. It was fantastic. Had to have you on the podcast. You're
2: never going to find anyone who says, I don't like debating. So (laughs) I absolutely love it. This is great. And I think you guys are doing some really cool stuff. So I really enjoyed it.
0: Do you have a name for your company yet before we go?
2: So it's going to be called Castlefield Asset Management, which was the road I lived on in Toronto when, when I was building a lot of these models. And I mean, I think it's still six months out. I think it's going to be some neat stuff for the 32nd version of it is been working what I'm going to call like the second generational turn of risk premiums that are, are looking for other dislocation and crowdedness.
0: Right. So you're going to try a little bit, this is a bit about providing orthogonal bets to that same space.
2: Yeah. The key is like, so I've got 20 to 25 independent ideas or models and each of them is uncorrelated with beta, uncorrelated with stocks and bonds, but also like vitally important, uncorrelated to all the alts. So uncorrelated trend falling and carry and momentum and vol selling and
0: what is uncorrelated? What's that zero? Number? The
2: average cross correlation term of all twenty twenty-five models is like 0.05, and the correlation to carry is zero. The correlation of momentum is zero. The correlation you know so I think like from that perspective, I think it's a really nice piece for an investor who already has the beta and the alts, which they should have, it has a risk parity process, which they should have. And these, so this is something that will fit in very nicely to that portfolio.
0: Well, looking forward to continuing our chats as you develop that and the firm. We'll have you back on once you have fully fleshed out product. If it does well. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what the backlash is. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. All
2: right. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media, And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.